morning. <clears throat> Can you hear me? All right, if you're wondering where Pastor Bart and Miss Kathy are, um, they have been in Texas and Dallas for the last few days at a family wedding. I think they're driving home today. I know the weather's been really bad, but um, so if, they're, if you're listening, Pastor Bart, Miss Kathy, we love you, we miss you, and praying for you to return safely. Um, welcome if you're online, welcome if you're here. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, where we will be again today. We're in a, a series, a long series on Luke. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be today, and uh, I'm just going to kind of jump right into it. Um, last week, Pastor Bart talked about how Jesus the King is bringing the kingdom of God in power and in authority through, through miracles and signs. And uh, as we move into chapter 5 today, we're going to start to see how there's a, a transition to a response, a call of, of response to this king and this kingdom that he is bringing. And we're going to look at a, a, a well-known story, if you've been in church long, um, make sure that my clicker is working. Good, okay. <clears throat> um, the one-known story of the miraculous catch of fish and the calling of Simon and some of the other disciples. And I think Luke does something interesting here. Remember, we're looking at things kind of from the unique perspective of Luke is what we're trying to do in this series. And one of the unique things that Luke does is he has this story of the calling of Simon after the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. If you remember last week, Pastor Bart covered that. The healing of um, when, when Jesus rebuked the fever of Simon's mother-in-law. It happened before, according to Luke's account, his chronology. Um, now, this story of the calling of the fishermen, Mark and Matthew have what looks like the same story in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. But the interesting thing is that scholars are in disagreement as to whether or not it's the same story here in Luke chapter 5 that we're about to look at here. Some think that it is and that Luke's just added more. He's kind of changed up the order of things. He's added more details. Other scholars would say, no, this is actually a different story. And because scholars are divided who are much smarter than me, I'm not going to say definitively one or the other, but... I'm just, I'm going to kind of put my cards out there and say, based on the study of the reading I've done, I'm going to lean towards the side of saying, I think this might be a separate, different story here in Luke chapter 5, the, the miraculous catch of fish and the calling of Simon. And just a couple of, of reasons why, and you're free to, to disagree, but we're going to go with that for today. But here's just a few reasons why scholars kind of argue this way, some of them is some key differences in these, these accounts, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. One is that it's actually a different Greek word that they use for the net that the fishermen have. Um, in Matthew and Mark, they use a word that is referring to more shallow water fishing that they would use, whereas Luke uses a totally different word that is talking more about deeper water fishing. Now, if you're saying, oh, Scott knows his fishing, um, no, I absolutely know nothing about fishing. Um, as Andy and, and Owen are actually in Florida right now with, with family in Jacksonville, and they're, I think, watching right now. Hey, guys. Um, but as my, two of my brothers-in-laws, who are big fishermen, um, can tell you, can testify, I know nothing about fishing. They're big fishermen, 
And for me, a successful cast is just me just not getting it caught in something on land and getting it out into the, into the ocean. But, um, so those are some reasons that they give. Also, uh, Mark and Matthew, not, you don't have to turn there, but they, they describe the fishermen as casting their nets, whereas Luke is describing them as washing their nets. Little difference there. Um, and then, of course, you got the miraculous catch of fish in Luke that is not in Mark and Matthew. So I'm going to go with, I think this might possibly be a different, a different account, a different story. Um, at least the fact that Luke has Peter already having been around Jesus a little bit before this, this encounter today. Now, you may be saying, okay, why does any of that matter? Well, I promise you, that's not just for like the nerds, the seminary people here. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is if indeed Peter, Simon at this point, he's, he's called mostly Simon in this story, if indeed he's already been around Jesus a little bit, if indeed he's already seen Jesus do some cool things in other people's lives, if indeed possibly he's even already following Jesus on some kind of level, then this story, this account is a major point in his life, a major shift where he goes from someone who has maybe great respect for Jesus to someone who falls at, on his knees at Jesus' feet, calls him Lord, and is willing to leave everything to follow him. And so that's why I'm calling this a powerful call today. There's something about this encounter with Peter that shifts Peter's life in a major way. So let's read Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. It's actually part of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when, they hit, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, so we've kind of got the setting here. He's teaching the crowd, but that's not really the point of what's going on. He's about to hone in on one person. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now just pause here, an interesting thing that I, I didn't actually know before I, because again, I don't know fishing, um, both now and in 2,000 years ago, but they use nets that were actually visible to the fish in the daylight. And so that's why they typically did their fishing at night when the fish couldn't see the nets. And they had fished all night, hadn't caught anything, and now this carpenter is telling this fisherman, hey, throw your nets down in the day. Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. 
from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Take a drink. I'm going to borrow a, uh, playbook, a page out of Gabe's playbook here and take a, take a drink. So the question, really the main question as I was kind of preparing and, and you know, praying through this text going in was, what was it about this powerful call of Jesus on Simon's life that so radically turns the direction of his life? Because, you know, I, I look out at the spiritual landscape that we're in right now, and, you know, I'm kind of most, mostly thinking in terms of, of the landscape for young people, because I work with the young people here at, at Fullness, and the stats are not good, and they're not going in a good direction. Um, I've, we had a retreat a few weeks ago, and we talked about how as our young people grow up, they're going to more and more be in the minority. Um, if they follow Jesus in a public way, it's not going to be normal. And don't we want ourselves and our young people and our kids to have the kind of encounter with Jesus where we're willing to say, Jesus, I'm going to leave everything and follow you no matter what the cost. Amen? Amen? And so what is it about this call, this powerful call of Jesus? So I'm going to talk about four things that I see in this call. Try to move through it relatively quickly because then I want to get to say a few things about the nature of discipleship, which is really where this passage is, is heading. And really discipleship is kind of the thing that God's been placing on my heart for a little bit a little while now. But before I do that, um, a story that I came across just a, f- a few weeks ago. Uh, Babylon Bee, do y'all know the Babylon Bee, the Christian satire site? Um, they did an interview with a- apparently uh, Elon Musk. It knows the Babylon Bee. Um, you know, the billionaire tech genius, Elon, that Elon Musk. Uh, he had apparently read some of their stuff, reached out to him. They got in contact. He came and did an interview with them, a long sit-down interview with them. And I'm going to feed forward here. I'm actually going to use this, in a, this story in a negative way. Um, so if, if you like the Babylon Bee, I'm about to say some things that are not most positive, but please don't get offended because I'm not trying to bash them. I've, I've greatly appreciated them. I've laughed at many stories that they've written over the years. But, so they do this interview with Elon Musk. The whole thing's on YouTube. You can watch it if you want. But it's a long interview. Toward the end, um, dramatic piano music starts playing. And one of the guys, Babylon B guys, says, so um, we thank you for being here. And we, we should say before you go, you know, we're, we're a Christian ministry, of course. And, and I just was wondering, can you do me a quick solid and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? before we finish up. And there's kind of this awkward pause. I don't know what Elon Musk, he doesn't know what to think. And he, he kind of starts sort of rambling a little bit and saying, basically, he, he admires the ethical teachings of Jesus. And he talks about things like turn the other cheek. I think he actually quotes Gandhi at one point and attributes it to Jesus. Um, and then basically says something like, you know, I think Jesus is great, and if, if people want to follow him, who am I to stand in their way? And the Babylon Bee guys basically say, well, I think that's a yes. I think we got him. And they kind of talk a little bit more, and that's it. That's the end of the interview. 
And it, it struck me as very, very sad. And, and I hope not a picture of where we are as the church right now. That I just, I was left thinking like, are we more, are we content to, to kind of make fun of and poke fun at and even mock those who may disagree with us culturally, politically, and not really call people to believe in the gospel and follow Jesus. Because we're about to see that when Jesus calls someone to follow him, it's a little different than that. And so let's look at what is the nature of Jesus's call, this powerful call to Simon and to us today. So the first thing is this, Jesus wants Peter, even in Peter's sinfulness. He wants Peter even in his sinfulness. It says in verse eight, you have Peter's confession of, of his sinfulness after the miraculous catch of fish. He says, he falls at his, at his feet and says, depart from me, I am a, I'm a sinful man. But notice that Jesus doesn't contradict him. He's not like, oh, Simon, don't beat yourself up. You're not that bad. No, he, he says, don't fear, fear not. And, you know, Jesus is going to say actually later in the chapter, in chapter 5, he's going to say, I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners to repentance. Meaning I came not to call those who think they're already fine, but those who know they're sinners. That's who I'm calling. That's who I'm choosing to bring to, bring to myself. And, you know, one of the main major contradictions of, of our society, okay, today, is simultaneously we both we basically despise and mock the idea of sin and calling someone a sinner right but yet there's this agreed upon kind of moral code ethical code in our society and when someone crosses it they better look out right because then suddenly everybody's shocked and like oh i can't believe they did that i would never do that and everyone's quick to pile on and and just cast them out and they're, they're done forever. Jesus goes against both notions. Jesus on one hand, he assumes that we are sinful. He's gonna say at another point later in Luke, the, the, the saying that you've probably heard before, if you who are sinful know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your father give, give the Holy Spirit, that verse? He's saying even the good parents we have a lot of good parents here at Fullness. It makes my job a lot easier because we have so many good parents. Jesus says, you're still evil. <laughs> but in your sin, I don't cast you out. I want you. So if you're like me, just being vulnerable here, and time to time you have thoughts go through your head like, God, do you really want me? Like, you could have chosen somebody better to be a dad to my kids, I think, or someone better to be the husband to my wife, or someone better to be the, one of the associate pastors here at this local church. Do you really, is, is it me? I mean, look at all the ways I've fallen short. And if you think that from time to time, Jesus would say, no, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly what you've done. And guess what? I've already chosen you. I want you with me, even in your sinfulness. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is this about this powerful call is Jesus elevates Peter's purpose. He elevates his purpose. You have the famous line in here 
in verse 10 where Jesus says to Simon, the, really the very next thing is don't be afraid. After Simon confesses his sinfulness, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He speaks his identity over him. He says, you're not going to be defined by, anymore by what you've done in the past or even by your current role. And I think that there might just be echoes here of an Old Testament passage in Jeremiah 16. Um, there's a couple other places in the prophets too where this happens, but the context is really the return from exile. You have the, the people that have gone into exile, right? And there are these different um, prophecies of them being returned out of exile. And in Jeremiah 16, 16, it says this, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Very interesting. Now, to be honest, the, the, the context also in Jeremiah 16 is really these fishers are coming to bring the judgment of God on the people for their iniquity. But I think, now Simon may not have known this, but I think that Jesus is kind of doing a little play on words switcheroo here saying the greater return from exile is happening. God is on the move. He is returning people from exile, bringing them into his kingdom. And guess what, Simon? I'm choosing you to be part of it. You're going to be part of what God is doing. And how many know God is on the move at fullness? I mean, I've, I've grown up at fullness. I've seen a lot here. I've been on staff at fullness for a while. I don't know what's, I mean, 2022, like the fast in the last few weeks, it's, there's been some cool things happening. Um, God's been on the move. God's been on the move with uh, our young people, with the retreat, and uh, the, the first Wednesday night that we had after the retreat. I'm, I'm really excited as I look around at, at some of our young people here, just what God's doing in their hearts and what he's going to do, what I think he's going to do in the, in the days ahead. And, and I just want to say to you here today, whether you're a student or a business worker or stay-at-home mom, you're, you're not just that. You are where you're at because you're being used as a fisherman or fisherwoman to call people into the kingdom. God is on the move and he wants you to be a part of it. You are not just your role. You're not just your, your fallings, your limitations, your, your past. You are who Jesus says you are. He's elevating your purpose Keep moving. I probably need to be going faster than what I'm going. Number three, Jesus expects radical commitment from Peter. So he wants Peter, even in his sinfulness, he elevates his purpose, but he also expects radical commitment from him. Verse 11, the last verse of this passage, this is the, the famous last part. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Again, Jesus doesn't contradict Peter and the other, the other fishermen. He doesn't say, whoa, guys, you're taking me a little seriously here. You, I didn't mean you to, just, to leave everything and follow me. No, Jesus expects that. <clears throat> One of the things that's a little bit unique about Luke, of course, all the gospels are really on following Jesus, but it's a little bit unique to Luke, is Luke is really emphasizing this thing of the, the costly nature 
of discipleship. It's kind of this idea that when you follow Jesus, it's not you make a decision once and you, you're good. It's no, you, you kind of get on this thing called the way. It's the way of Jesus. Later, Christianity and Acts is going to be called the way. And the way is you deny yourself daily. It's the verse that you probably know well later on in Luke. This is a good example of what I'm talking about is the first um, Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He expects radical commitment. Again, this is so contrary to our society, right? The, um, the hip-hop artist, um, the Christian author, who I'm a big fan of, actually, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, and uh, my wife uh, loves reading her. She says, I think she nails it in describing modern society. She says, we have concluded in our society that because this is how I feel, this is who I am. And in our society... We, we're all about um, discovering the self, understanding the self, celebrating the self, following the self, right? Now, don't hear me just completely, you know, rejecting all forms of self-knowledge. There's a, there's a place for healthy, healthy self-knowledge, but we're obsessed with the self in, in our day and age, right? Right? And... <sighs> A question that I've had, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I've, I've just, I've wondered if the reason why we, one reason why we see many people tend to be on the younger side who are, we thought were followers of Jesus, you know, grew up in church. We thought they were, you know, committed. And then they renounce their profession of faith at some point and they go a different direction. And they're like, you know, I've, I grew up, I got, I got mature and I realized that there's other things. Something that I've been wondering lately is, could it be that we've not done a good job of communicating to them the nature of what it means to follow Jesus? The cost of what it is, what it takes to follow him. The costly nature of discipleship that when you have people that are drinking in the spirit of the age, of self-individualism, self-expressionism, self-actualization, and then they bump up against the call of Christ, they're like, I don't want to pay that cost. Because all I've ever heard is I've got to be, i got to discover my deepest desires, be authentic to those wherever they lead, and Jesus, you're telling me to deny myself? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus expects radical commitment from Simon and from all who would come after him. And number four, the last part of, of this powerful call, this might be my favorite one, is Jesus astonishes Peter. He astonishes Peter. Verse nine, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So, Jesus, again, we're going with, I'm, I'm going with, I think Peter probably already had some awareness of Jesus, probably had already seen Jesus do some things, maybe from a distance, maybe from not too far of a distance, but Jesus has now entered into Peter's world, right? 
he's got in Peter's boat. He gives Peter a direct command. And then he gives Peter a direct call to follow him. So it's almost like the fisherman has been caught in the net of the master fisher. He's been confronted with him. And he sees this miraculous catch, something that relates to him in his world in a way that blows his mind that he can't explain with his knowledge. And he is astonished. The Greek word, it, it basically means to be amazed, to, to be surprised, even to be shocked. And the problem with our modern society is, you know, Jesus is still pretty well respected and admired, right? By most people, at least. But I don't really think I see a whole lot of people who Jesus astonishes them. You know, typically... People see Jesus as just kind of something that some people are into, right? Like, um, well, some people are into wellness living. Some people are into working their job. And so they hear Christians talk about Jesus like, oh, well, they're into Jesus. He's kind of their thing. You know, I like to go to the gym. They like to go to church. <laughs> but that's not how it is when Jesus confronts someone, when Jesus puts his call on someone he doesn't just become a little add-on to their life. He becomes the center that their life revolves around. And the question that I felt like the Holy Spirit was asking me as I was you know, preparing this was, Scott, does Jesus still astonish you? Because I'm not a new believer anymore. But does Jesus still take your breath away? When you think about who he is, what he did, the story of taking on flesh, living, triumphing as a human where I've failed as a human, taking death head on in my place, defeating it by rising from the dead to reconcile me to God. Does Jesus astonish me? Does Jesus still astonish you? Where you would say, you know, Jesus, I don't have all of my questions answered maybe about who you are or what's happened in my life or what's going on around. But I've seen enough of you to know that you are good and you're better than anything and anyone else that I've ever seen. And I'm with you. I'm with you for the long haul. Jesus astonished Peter. So let's kind of take this home a little bit. So those are the four things about the call, the powerful call of Jesus. He wants Peter in his sinfulness. He elevates his purpose. He expects radical commitment from him. He astonishes him. But since this passage is really headed towards the, the, it's the concept of discipleship, who or what is discipling you? Now, I didn't ask you if you have, if you're in an official discipleship program, if you're in an official Bible study, if you're in seminary, if you have an official mentor, all great things, all great things. We, we, were, we love those things. But I'm, I'm thinking about it in a little bit more broad terms. You know, Pastor Bart talked about this some last week. He said, you know, basically in the Western church, we've kind of reduced discipleship to, to the information that we receive in our heads, basically usually at, on church, on, on Sunday at church. 
um, where we're just we're taking in information, which is good, right? I mean, we, we're people of truth. We love truth. We want to combat lies with truth, right? But depending on how broadly you define what it means to be a disciple of something or someone, everybody you see is a disciple. And here's, here's one of the best definitions that I've seen of, of what it means to be a disciple, what discipleship is. This is by a Christian uh, philosopher, James K.A. Smith. He says, discipleship is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Think about that for a second. It's not just the information that we take in. We're not just computers who are walking, taking in data. It's, it's about the orientation of your heart. What are you drawn towards? What are you shaped to love? What are you shaped to reject? And when you put it like that, everyone that you see is a disciple of, of something. This quote comes from a book called, um, you, I think it's called uh, The Spiritual Power. No, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, um, which is a good book. I don't, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a good book. Basically, some of the things that he's arguing is he's talking about your habits, the things that you do just regularly, the patterns of your life. And he says that they reveal what you love, but they also can reshape and reform what you love too. They do both. They reveal what you love and they shape and form what you love. And so what is shaping? What is forming? What is discipling? Who is discipling? You. Another Christian philosopher who I know we got some big fans of at Fullness, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, he says this, it is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then evaluate the results in us of their teaching. Not just the information that we received, otherwise probably then your science teacher would be one of your biggest disciplers. But I'm guessing for most of the people here, their science teacher in middle school is probably not their biggest discipler, right? Maybe for some of you. Um, but who has, who has really mastered you and, and taught you? So this would include shows that we binge, um, podcasts that we listen to, social media influencers that we follow. There are disciples of Ben Shapiro. There are disciples of CNN. There are disciples of Jordan Peterson. There are disciples, sorry, I don't, I don't mean this is like the right wing and this is the left wing of the church. I'm not, not implying that. Um, there are disciples of Jordan Peterson. There are disciples of NPR. I, the list could go on and on. Um, now I'm being intentionally a little bit provocative, but I hope you see my point that the stuff that we take in, it does something to us. Sometimes we do things that do things to us when we do them regularly. They shape and they form us. They curate our heart and our loves. And so James K.A. Smith, this philosopher, um, he has some helpful, I think, diagnostic questions that we can ask about the things that we're taking in on a regular basis. I'm going to move kind of quickly through these. Um, they're kind of his questions, and then I've added some on to kind of, kind of flesh them out a little bit. So the first one is, is this. What story is embedded in these cultural practices that you might be taking in? 
What's, and it's a capital S. What story is embedded in this? Kind of big picture story. So other ways to ask that, these are my questions that I've added. Who are the good guys in this story? Who are the bad guys? What is the nature of this great conflict? What's the solution? Who's the hero of this story? Another question. What kind of person do they want you to become? Probably the answer to that is probably going to end up being someone who's a lot like them, whoever this voice is that, that you might be taking in. They want you to become a, an angry person, an anxious person, a thoughtful person, a just person, a compassionate person. What kind of person do they want you to become? Third question, to what kingdom are these rituals aimed? Pastor Bart talked about, about the kingdom a lot last week. What kind of kingdom is this, though? And what, how does it spread? Does it look like the kingdom that Jesus is bringing? Does it spread the way that Jesus' kingdom spreads? Or does it spread like and look like another type of kingdom? And the last question, what does this cultural institution want you to love? What does it want you to love? And a flip way, an opposite way to answer that, to ask that is, who or what does it want you to hate? <clears throat> my, um, my dad was a longtime baseball coach, college baseball coach, as many know. Um, here in town, coached a couple of different schools, smaller schools, uh, BSC, UAB. But they played a lot of larger schools frequently, go to like, you know, big name or SEC type schools, go play in those stadiums um, where they were often the underdog and they would go play at some pretty hostile environments, right? Um, where the fans were not very, not very kind. And one of the things that they would do, my dad doesn't know I'm going to tell this story, um, but I hopefully I have permission. Uh, one of the things that they would do, <laughs> too late now, um, one of the things that they would do is for practice sometimes to get ready when they knew they were going to go into a particularly hostile environment, you know, a road, road game, is they would get some of the college students from the school that, that, they were, you know, that, they're, that he's coaching at, and they would get them to come to practice and get them to heckle the players. You may think that's funny, but they would, they would get them to come and try to make fun of them, find something about them to just zero in on, mock them about, get their focus anywhere off of what they should be doing, distract them. Why? Because they knew that was the kind of environment that they were going into. And they wanted them to be ready to go do battle together with their brothers in this kind, this kind of environment. They wanted to be honest about the cost of what was going to be put before them for what they were going to be doing. Now, <laughs> the implication. Some of you may be thinking, so are you saying we get all the children and young people here at Fullness, get them together, circle around them, and we make fun of them? <laughs> now, some of you may, um, to be honest, some of you may enjoy that a little bit too much. But that's, that's not what I'm saying. 
But I am saying, I think we need to be honest with our kids about what it means to follow Jesus. That it's going to cost them something. It could cost them a lot. I'm, I'm reading um, Pilgrim's Progress right now with um, my daughter, Ellie, who's six. And uh, I don't know if she's getting everything. It's a, kind of a children's version of it. But um, it's just interesting to me. You know, you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, the, the character Christian who's on the road to basically heaven. And he meets character after character after character who is on the road for a while, but then gets off. It just becomes too hard. And, and the, the message over and over again is you got to stay on the road, stay on the way, stay on the way. And that's what I'm trying to convey, not only to our kids, but to our, our young people here, is it's going to be costly, but it's going to be worth it because Jesus is worth it. So I'd like to ask um, Craig and the team to come up in just a second. I'm going to ask Gabriel to come up because I want him to give... Um, an invitation to the table, but uh, I want to close with this quote. <clears throat> it's kind of hard to talk about discipleship without talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, so I'm going to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian who uh, wrote the book, Cost of Discipleship. And he has these two ideas that he talks about, cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is basically kind of this nonchalant attitude of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. It's kind of doing a quick solid versus costly grace, which he defines this way. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what cost God much cannot be cheap for us. He finishes by saying, above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so here's how I want us to end today with an invitation to the table. And when, we, when we come to the table, we don't just come to say we remember the death of Jesus, although we absolutely do that. That is a huge part of it. We're remembering and proclaiming his death until he comes. But we also believe at fullness that, um, don't exactly understand it, but there's something to this, that when the people of God come to the table of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus meets with us. When we come and we say, Jesus, I want to consume you into myself. I want to take you into myself. I want to unite myself with you. And so I want to, if you're here today, first, if you're here and you would say, you know, I'm one of those ones who, like Peter, I've been around Jesus a good bit. I've even seen him do some really cool things in other people's lives. But I don't know if I've ever had a moment where I said, you're Lord, I fall at your feet. I, I'm leaving everything to go after you. Today can be that for you. 
If you want to do that today, there are so many who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here and you've said, well, I, I, I know Jesus. I've been following Jesus for a while. Then here's how I want you to view this. Is This is your way to say yes again. To say, Jesus, I'm yours. And I give you my yes again. You are my Lord and I leave everything to follow you. So Gabriel, if you would come up and and give us an invitation to the table. I love that setting of the table. Of this is the place where